And so, church family, as we prepare to read God's word, hear him. Um, Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross, and when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with the gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, dividing his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others himself. He cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to Lord and thank Him for His Word this morning. Gracious Father, we do indeed thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You've opened our eyes to the truth of this Word. In it we have the record of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We have His work, His life, the record of His death, burial, and resurrection. Father, we have in it all that we need to know, to believe, and to live lives of righteousness before You. And we ask as we come to this passage this morning that You would deepen our understandings of the sufferings of your Son, Jesus Christ. That you would impress upon our hearts the depth of that suffering. That you would open our eyes to see it anew. And that you would, by doing so, transform us more and more into the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as I said, uh, this morning will feel a little bit more what we call topical than exegetical, uh, particularly given that we are picking up just one aspect of what we find here in Matthew 26 and 27. Um, We are going to consider it in uh, far greater detail than we normally would any given theme or topic Uh, But if you had the chance to read this week from particularly Psalm 22, Isaiah 52 and 53, Zechariah 13, for example, you saw the prophesied sufferings of the servant who would come to rescue God's people from their sin. So what we read here is the account of the fulfillment of those scriptures. That's what we're going to consider this morning. Jesus' suffering for our sake. We want to hopefully, Lord willing, have it impressed upon our hearts how we are also called to suffer for the name of Jesus. So those will really be the two points we'll be considering this morning, the sufferings of Jesus Christ and our call to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at the first half, that is, Jesus suffered for our sake. It's the first thing I want us to examine this morning, that Jesus suffered for our sake. There is one 
thing I think we should remind ourselves that we probably most uh, hope already know. Uh, By way of preliminary observation by the scriptures, we should all know that Jesus is fully man. Uh, We'll examine that uh, in a little bit more depth now. Jesus took on a full humanity, lacking nothing in his human nature. We know this from the Bible, right? We know that Jesus got hungry. Jesus was tired. Jesus bled. Jesus was even tempted in Matthew chapter 4. And yet, God cannot be tempted according to James chapter 1. And so, as the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, "...inasmuch then as the children have partaken uh, um, of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same." Jesus was fully human. And again, I feel the need to say that because if, if we're at risk of an error in understanding who Jesus is in our day and age among this crowd, it almost really leans into the direction of diminishing his humanity. In our culture, in this room, I am sure that as Christians, few of us probably wrestle with the divinity of Christ. We believe that he is very God of very God, but, but sometimes we allow that to eclipse his humanity in such a way that it actually becomes very hard for us to understand that Jesus suffered. It's hard for us to imagine Jesus suffering. Maybe we wouldn't consciously say that Jesus is less than human. Yet when we think about him, particularly in the sufferings of Christ, what I mean by that is we tend to think of Christ's suffering sort of in Superman suffering terms, right? You know, it probably is really hard, but he doesn't really suffer like I would suffer. It's of a different quality or nature. But as we just read from Hebrews, he was like us in every way, yet without sin. He endured all our temptation, yet without sin. Jesus, hear me, suffered. So Jesus is fully God, yet Jesus' sufferings were not lighter than yours because he was fully God. So let's consider that as we find it in Matthew chapter 26 through 27. I really want you here, the goal here is for us all to empathize with our shepherd Jesus Christ. You know what empathy means, right? My wife is probably the most empathetic person I've met. It's the Attempt to enter into the emotional or mental experience of another. And that's what we're attempting to do this morning as we consider these things. To enter into the emotional experience of Jesus. According to Matthew chapter 26, starting in verses 14 through 16, and as well at verses 69 through 75, we see first and foremost that Jesus was tragically betrayed and shamefully Denied. Jesus was tragically betrayed and shamefully denied. I'd be willing to bet that there's not a person in this room that hasn't been betrayed before. If we're honest, betrayal is probably a common human experience, at least at some level. By betrayal, I mean being the subject of someone else's infidelity, unfaithfulness, or disloyalty. Obviously, this requires an established relationship, and the closer the relationship, the greater potential for betrayal. There's a greater potential for betrayal 
between Amy and I than there is between me and the guy at the checkout register at Winn-Dixie. So the betrayal of a spouse or the betrayal of a best friend is far more grievous than other types of betrayal. Betrayal involves the breaking of trust and reversal of allegiances. It's the sacrifice of one relationship for some other perceived good. And interestingly enough, what's usually revealed is that one's primary allegiance is to oneself. It's less about a greater love for another person or thing. It's almost always just a revelation that you are your highest good. That we are always most loyal to ourselves. Listen, Judas didn't betray Jesus because he loved the Sanhedrin more. But because the Jesus train wasn't heading in the direction that Judas wanted it to go. Peter didn't deny Jesus three times because he really cared about the approval of servant girls. He loved his own life and desired to save it. Betrayal is is so destructive because what we value most is ultimately revealed in the process of betrayal. When we are betrayed by others, we recognize we have abandoned, we have been abandoned, excuse me, for something or someone else. In, in some cases, this is obvious, like uh, the infidelity in a marriage. When a man finds satisfaction or delight in someone who's not his spouse, he has abandoned the wife of his youth for another. But again, we've all experienced some type of betrayal. We've all been hurt by people who we trusted. And most of us carry scars from those betrayals. Some of us really struggle to trust another person because of them. But I would remind you also that the same is true. We have also all betrayed others. If you're honest with yourself this morning, you will remember times when you broke trust and acted unfaithfully in some relationship that God gave you to steward. We've been committed to some relationship only to decide later that the relationship wasn't worth the cost and so we abandoned our commitments. I mean, all of us were created in relationship with the true and living God, right? It is a relationship by its very nature that requires trust, loyalty, love, and commitment. And just like our first parents, each and every one of us have betrayed our Creator. We've all committed adultery by seeking our satisfaction in a joy that's apart from God. By believing and acting upon the belief that the things He has created are worth more than He is. See, the reason I say all that is because there was one exception, wasn't there? One. There has only been one person who ever lived on this earth that did not betray anyone. Jesus, he never, not even once, betrayed his father. Instead, he faithfully trusted him and did his will. Jesus never betrayed his country, his family, or his friends. Jesus was perfectly loyal, keeping his commitments, acting justly in every relationship. And Jesus had bound himself to 12 men whom he chose. These men were given a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. They witnessed his righteousness in all things. 
And more than that, they knew Jesus' companionship. See, and this is where we struggle to empathize. So, so the betrayal of Judas was real and it was hurtful. But remember, the closer the friend, the greater the betrayal. Too often we're tempted with the knowledge that Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. And that in turn diminishes the betrayal. But we miss the point. Listen, God knew Adam would betray him in the garden, but even so, the betrayal was the free and conscious rejection of the loyalty due to the Creator. Judas, like Adam, had walked with Jesus. He had seen Jesus' love for people. He experienced Jesus' love for him. Judas, like Adam, talked with God and knew his goodness, kindness, and fidelity. Well, not exactly like Adam, sure. There is a distinction. Judas, unlike Adam, had a sin nature. But all the same, Judas had been sincerely loved. And his betrayal was the uncoerced rejection of the light of the world. Judas decided that a slave's wage was worth more than his friendship with Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 41 verse 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. These are Jesus' words. Listen, betrayal and denial are more hurtful the more significant the relationship. And so also betrayal and denial are deepened by the love and loyalty of the one betrayed. Don't miss that point either. So if a wife was unfaithful to a husband who was utterly perfect in his love for his wife, we would all recognize that betrayal is somehow far more grievous than a wife who is unfaithful to a husband who regularly abandons her. There is something that is obvious about that even to us. And so it is when Jesus is betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter, there is something diabolical or heinous about that to an extent of depth we've never witnessed before because of the perfect love of Jesus. Yet we rarely even look at it like that, do we? Jesus was certainly tragically betrayed and shamefully denied. But not only that, secondly, I want us to see that Jesus was falsely accused and unjustly condemned. He was not only tragically betrayed and shamefully denied, he was also falsely accused and unjustly condemned. Let me just say up front, no one likes being falsely accused, right? There's just something about that that makes our blood boil. Once we move from the world to the Bible to our own lives, it's not difficult to see the depth of suffering that's caused by circumstances like these. The circumstances in chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. And again, in chapter 27, verses 24 through 26, both Jesus' false accusation by the Jewish leaders and his unjust condemnation by Pontius Pilate. I mean, I think most of us probably have experienced being falsely accused at some point. Just think about how indignant it made you. We have also, however, if you paid attention to the first point, we've also, however, falsely accused, though, haven't we? We think we see something clearly, but in the end, our perception just isn't what we thought it was. We may not think of it like this, but but we've also falsely accused God. We don't think of those terms, sure, but it's true. 
Have we not at times accused him of being unjust in some way? Is there not a single one among us who would attempt to deny that charge? We have accused him of not keeping his promises. Or claiming he has promised things he has not promised. We've accused him of withholding good things from us. And again, the reason we bring up that is because it's true. There's only one person who never leveled a false accusation against God or anyone else. Never unjustly condemned God or anyone else. He was the embodiment of perfect righteousness and justice. Every accusation was true and every condemnation perfectly just. It's not true of us, is it? See, when I'm falsely accused, my consciousness reminds me that it's so unfair. And then immediately it switches to think, I mean, there are all these things that are true that you can accuse me of, but this very one specific thing is just not true. I'm I'm not guilty of that one, at least right now. (laughs) Like, not this time. That wasn't the case with Jesus. Jesus was truly and fully above reproach in every single way. There was absolutely no charge that would ever stick, ever. They could have sat there for years. They could have called forth every witness in all of Israel. There was no true accusation against Jesus. In fact, if you remember the counter, you read the account, they didn't even bother looking for a true one from the very beginning. They were just looking for a false accusation, and even that was really hard to pin on Jesus. Every thought, word, and deed of Jesus is righteous. In fact, the, the accusation that is finally leveled at him, blasphemy, is only made because of his true and righteous testimony of his unique relationship to his father. I mean, think about it. Kids, think about this. Imagine if you were the son of some great king and you went into another land, a land that was ruled by your father. And you make some close friends when you're there. And one of those friends betrays you and another one denies you. The people of the land, they drag you into court and they ask you if you are truly the son or daughter of the king. Now remember in this story, you actually are a son or daughter of the king. In fact, you're the only son. So you assert that you are the king's son. You mention your father is giving you this land. You say, by the way, this is kind of mine. I own it. So not only are you the king's son, you are their new king and they accuse you of lying about this. The people of the land then condemn you to death. There's never been a less true accusation or more unjust condemnation than the one we see in Matthew 26 and 27. You remember how I said in betrayal that the greater, the closer the relationship, the greater the betrayal? Well, it works similarly in regard to this. The more righteous the man the more heinous the false accusation. See, in our justice system, when the righteous man is condemned, it's always an abomination. But here is one who is purely righteous, and he's falsely accused and unjustly condemned. There has never been a greater act of injustice in all of human history. So, if you feel offended and hurt by false accusations, surely you can appreciate That Jesus' experience is greater because the accusation was even more false. Jesus was the embodiment of these words in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, where it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Meaning he understood that better than, than we do. 
He lived it perfectly. Jesus longed for justice more than any of us do. He longed to see his Father's will done on earth as it is in heaven in a way that none of us ever have. And he was the subject of the greatest travesty of justice ever perpetuated by humanity. So if for a moment we are able to read that and imagine that Jesus' silence when he was on trial communicates that he didn't feel indignation... Friends, that's the wrong interpretation of what's going on there. Don't mistake his silent suffering for apathy or even divine impassibility. In fact, Psalm 109, it may have been written by David, but it was written for Jesus. Listen to the words of Psalm 109. It says, Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. They've also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. Now, you read that psalm. It's a psalm of David, but it is right and righteously put on the lips of Jesus. There was passion and indignation at what was transpiring against him. But he was silent because he was submissive to the Father. He was silent because he was committed to saving his people, not because he was apathetic. The psalm goes on. It says, in return for my love, they are... My accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Verse 5, thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. This is a part of a very passionate appeal in Psalm 109 for the destruction of his enemies. And the psalm ends this way. Listen to God's word. It says, I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is in your hand. That you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. You think that this psalm wasn't on the mind of Jesus while he was standing there silently? His resignation was submission to the will of his father, not superhuman stoicism. Jesus also was poignantly rejected and arrogantly mocked. Jesus was also poignantly rejected and arrogantly mocked. He was tragically betrayed, shamefully denied, falsely accused, unjustly condemned, poignantly rejected, and arrogantly mocked. I'll have to be a little briefer with these. Don't want to turn to Brian Stiles um, tomorrow. I hope he hears that. Kidding. What a word he gave us last week. uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 23 and 27 through 44. Just meditate on it. Put yourself in his place for a moment. They pick a notorious prisoner over Jesus. When given the choice between their Messiah, the son of David, and a murderer... They choose Barabbas. They choose the one from the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent. Listen, when we look at this from a redemptive historical perspective, it it does, it looks one way, right? It's critical to see it from the perspective that this was the plan all along, yes. But this morning, I want us to ignore the forest and study the tree just for a moment. Is that okay? Here is Jesus One who has loved God and God's people with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength his whole life. Truth incarnate. 
beauty incarnate, goodness incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And as he stands there before his people, they demonstrate the depth of their hatred towards him by choosing a man who likely had few friends. Don't miss this, by the way. There's no way to read this as if they chose Barabbas because they thought he was a swell guy. Like Barabbas, man, hey, we've been waiting for an opportunity to get you out of there, buddy. That's not what this is. This isn't choosing Barabbas. This is rejecting Jesus. Pilate could have said, I have to release a prisoner. I have Jesus and this microphone stand, right? They said, we'll take the stand. It was a clear and unequivocal rejection of the Son of God. And of course, it doesn't end there. Then he's mocked by the soldiers, taunted by the crowds, reviled by the thieves. You know the whole saying, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never... You know that's a bunch of malarkey, right? I would take a stick or a stone most times over a harsh word from someone I love. We've all been on the giving and receiving end of that. You could also think of it from this perspective. Mothers, fathers, how would you feel if it was your son or daughter in that situation? Hanging upon that cross. Sweet Princess Addie asked me that question yesterday in family worship. What was Mary thinking when Jesus was hanging upon the cross? She had to watch her baby suffer. Just think about it. You know they're innocent, and yet you watch them hang there, listening to the crowds, Taunt and revile. Let's just be honest. If it was us, we would have whistled for the 12 legions of angels and there would have been a whole lot of people hanging on a whole lot of trees. But instead, we gather each and every week to sing songs like, Behold that man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. If only we could stop there, right? But we can't. Jesus was also violently scourged and horrifically crucified. Jesus was violently scourged and horrifically crucified. We haven't, by the way. This is the first time we've arrived at any of the physical part of this. You notice that? And I'm not even going to say much here because most of us are familiar with that. And the reality is, the reality is, it's the one we relate to the least, I mean, most of us have not been tempted to the point of shedding blood, have we? This was torture. It was grueling punishment that was used to inflict maximum amount of pain while delaying death as long as possible. No one here has experienced the type of physical pain that Jesus endured for us. I know that many of us deal with pain, yes. But this process of scourging and crucifying was designed to be especially painful and humiliating. It was actually considered so cruel that it was outlawed among the Roman citizens. It was too cruel and barbaric to be applied to a Roman citizen. And I don't know if you've studied much history about Rome. They weren't always very fond of their citizens, particularly those who disobeyed the law. Yet there, the king of the entire world hung. Okay, so obviously this certainly doesn't exhaust the suffering of Christ. And I know you're thinking, Pastor Cody, please, you can't possibly stop there. But I want us to switch gears for the rest of our time together. Because yes, we saw that Jesus suffered for our sake. But but I also want us to see this very clearly. Jesus suffered for our sakes. 
so we should suffer for the name of Jesus. I'm going to say a couple things really quickly, and I'm going to hang out somewhere and beat that horse till it's dead. Um, And you're going to beg me to stop, but I'm going to keep going. You're probably already begging me to stop. Jesus suffered for our sake, so we should suffer for the name of Jesus. First, I want us to see this. We're called to suffer because we are the aroma of Christ in a fallen world. That's why we're called to suffer. It's one reason, at least. The scriptures are clear. Maybe you wrestle with this or don't really see this, but I I promise you, the scriptures call God's people to suffer. Almost, by the way, predominantly, when the Bible talks about either the call to suffer um, or, or any suffering call, it's in the context of persecution for the name of Christ. See, see, we all suffer because we all live in a sin-stained world, right? But when we talk about the suffering we're called to, it's a suffering that specifically is because we're going out into a world that's still filled with the same vitriol, scorn, and hatred for the Son of God. So as we go out, we are full of Him. We are the aroma of Christ in this world. We can expect to be met with the similar things that Christ was met with. We're called to suffer. That's the first thing. You had verses in this week's reading that helped you see this, hopefully. Secondly, we're called to suffer not only because we're the aroma of Christ in a fallen world, but we're called to suffer because we're fallen people living in community together. We are fallen people, and we are living in a community together. That's why so much of the New Testament, in its exhortations to the covenant community, the church, So many of those exhortations are about bearing with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another as you've been forgiven. Philippians chapter 2, having the same mind of Christ Jesus, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Humbly living together, putting on people's needs before your own. Colossians chapter 3, same argument is made. We must forgive one another as we have forgiven Christ. You just take that and apply it. Take take the one another commands, particularly in the New Testament, and apply it, and that will keep you busy until Christ Jesus returns, I promise. Here's the third. We're called to suffer because we're the realm of Christ in a fallen world. Called to suffer because we're a fallen people living in community together. These are the ones I'm moving quickly through, by the way. Third, we're called to suffer because we reflect God's love when we suffer. Did you know that? Or at least we ought to. We reflect God's love when we suffer. Please hear me. This needs to be said and it needs to be heard. We most reflect the love of God when we are loving people who hate us. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? At the end of chapter 5? He said, what is it if you love one another? The Gentiles do that, don't they? You're to love your enemies. Romans chapter 5, that beautiful portrait painted there by the Apostle Paul of the love of God for us. How did we come to know God's love? We came to know God's love precisely and especially because Christ died for us while we were still yet His enemies. John says the very same thing, 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath appeaser for our sins. That's how you know the love of God. And so how is the world going to know the love of Christ? 
Because you're nice to them when they're nice to you? No. It's precisely at the point where it makes no sense to return their evil with good. This actually takes us straight into the final one. Church family, we are called to imitate Christ in His suffering. This is a calling that's clear in Scripture. Listen, this isn't me offering an application. This is me saying, here's what the Scriptures say about the sufferings of Christ and how to apply them. Just think about what what Peter says in light of what we just saw in the depth of Christ's suffering. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, verse 20 and on. He says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? I mean, if you can't say amen, just say ouch to that, right? How much of our suffering even is actually just self-induced? Yet we claim that we're the victim. But Peter writes, on the other hand, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. To to what have you been called? Suffering. For this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, here's what's crazy about this. Peter's saying, listen... Christ left you an example, and you are to do as he does. You're to follow in his steps in this. And by the way, he's not talking about cleansing the temple, right? Like, I I wish he was. I wish he almost said, I'll leave you an example. He left you an example. You saw him cleanse the temple. Go get it. Cause some damage. That's not what he's saying, though. He's referring to what we just talked about in Matthew 26 and 27. If you don't believe me, all you got to do is keep reading 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Or go down to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He's been talking about different groups of people, and now he's talking to everyone. He says this, He says, finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this. Church, Jesus was betrayed and denied. Jesus was falsely accused and unjustly condemned. He was rejected, mocked, and reviled. He was scourged and crucified. You were called to endure these things as he did. Listen carefully. This may be difficult. Don't don't hear me claiming that it's not difficult. It may be difficult, but it ain't complicated. It may be really hard, but it ain't complex. Hear me. We cannot be a people who justify our returning evil for evil when we're reviled because we're right. The scriptures are really clear. Your example is Christ. It's not the example of the world. 
It's Christ who did not return evil, did not revile, did not threaten. He endured greater suffering than you will ever know. So you can't play that you don't understand my suffering card. That's not going to float here. And and so how do we do this? How? Because we need to know how. It's foreign to us. Here's the key. This is what Jesus imitates for us. Complete and utter trust in his Father. He trusted in his suffering that his Father will vindicate him. He trusted in his suffering that he doesn't have to vindicate himself. God will. Even if they kill him, God will raise him from the dead. What can they do? And you know what we often do? Here's what we do. We fight the fight before God ever intervenes. We step in like, no, this is not going to happen to me. You're not going to say that to me. And we begin vindicating ourselves immediately. And we pile on evil upon evil upon evil. There are only two choices here, saints. Vindicate yourself, fight for yourself, defend yourself, or trust in the God who fights for the poor and needy. Those are the choices we face. Those are your two choices. You are not justified to fight, demean, reject, hold on to bitterness, mock and revile, no matter what anyone does to you. That's why it's so critical to see the sufferings of Christ, because that's the example. So I'll make you a deal. You ready? When you're treated worse than Jesus Christ, then by all means, take off the gloves and it's up to you. At the point that you can say that you've been betrayed more, denied more, more falsely accused, more falsely condemned, mocked more, taunted more, reviled more, scourged more, crucified more than Christ, then by all means take matters into your own hands. But until then, Christ is the example. And church, that starts right here. There's there's probably a lot of work to do here. There are probably those who need to seek the forgiveness of someone. There are probably some of us who need to extend forgiveness to someone else. Some of us need to meditate on the sufferings of Jesus in our calling, praying that the Lord would renew our minds to help us be a people who are not surprised when we suffer. And all of this is ultimately not because Christ just left an example, though, is it? What I mean by that is, I know that can sound confusing. What I mean is, Jesus wasn't merely betrayed, merely denied, merely falsely accused, merely unjustly condemned, rejected, mocked, scourged, and crucified. This is all actually grounded in something entirely different, isn't it? See, none of that compares to what Christ suffered on the cross for our sake, (laughs) Christ experienced something we will never experience because He experienced it for us. What did He experience that we'll never experience? He was forsaken by His Father. Hear this. 
Jesus was cut off from the source of joy, life, and every good thing. And here is where every comparison ends. Right here. Jesus was also forsaken by his Father. Jesus knows suffering that we will never know because he suffered in our place, bore our sins. And I just got to pause right there and say that I pray this is the case for every single person in this room. What I'm doing right now is I'm making an assertion that we don't have to know the wrath of God. We don't have to know being forsaken by God. being cast out of God's presence precisely because Christ did that for us. But friends, if if you choose to reject Him, if you choose to deny Him, if you choose to continue to mock Him, then you choose to continue to bear your own sins upon your shoulders. And there is no future help. There is no other way. So from the bottom of my heart, please don't keep betraying him. Don't keep denying him. Don't keep mocking and reviling the Son of God who laid down his life to rescue us from our sins. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who love and follow him, we need to know that that though we will be betrayed, denied, rejected, taunted, mocked and reviled because we're the aroma of Christ in this world... That we will ultimately never know true suffering of being under God's wrath. We will never know that. Listen, if your commitment to honor Christ by imitating Him in your suffering, if it's not grounded in that, then you're not going to imitate Christ in your suffering. Friends, we will know the displeasure of men. But praise be to Jesus Christ our Lord... We will never know God's ultimate displeasure because Christ became sin for us. So now all we know from God is mercy, grace, love, favor, and kindness. Are you hearing this? In conclusion, Jesus really suffered everything we will ever suffer, but he suffered even more. He suffered But those who know Christ will never know the righteous wrath of God against our sins. So indeed, as we're about to sing, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would you stand as we pray this morning? Gracious Father, we're simply in all of your loving kindness towards us. And we confess corporately that we have too often demonstrated that we think too lightly of the sufferings of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we see clearly in the Scriptures, you've called us to follow His example, to suffer for His name. Instead, we have too often chosen to vindicate ourselves, to fight for our own cause, put our own rights before the rights of others. Lord, would you forgive us? Would you renew our minds? 
Would you help us to meditate on the depth of the suffering of your son? And would you make us more willing to not revile when we are reviled and to overcome evil with good? We ask um, for your help in this because, Lord, it's difficult. But we ask for your help solely because of the fame and name of your son, Jesus Christ who we are called to honor, glorify, and imitate. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Is he yours? What I mean by that is do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Knowing what he endured on the cross, examining that today, we have to ask why. He did it because of love. See, God created this world and everything in it. He owns it. He created man really to be the chief of all creation, to rule and reign over creation under the authority of their good and righteous creator, worshiping him perfectly, glorifying him perfectly, walking relationships with him perfectly as they did so. And yet man rejected this good and righteous king and instead lived for themselves. As we already seen, they worship the creation instead of the creator. And the penalty for that in the eyes of a just and, and holy God is full wrath for sins. Punishment forever in a place called hell. Because you've broken his law. You live in his world. He doesn't live in yours. He created this and he owns it. You've rejected him. You were born doing so and you continue to willfully and freefully choose to do so. So apart from him doing something about your ruin, ruin stead. You, friend, would have no hope of salvation and you would be most pitied. But praise be to God that the man of sorrows came and he lived a perfect life and he willfully endured suffering beyond anything we'll ever imagined so that we could have a right relationship with our creator so we could live out our very purpose of bringing honor and glory to God. But it will only come through the blood of His Son and the righteousness that He's purchased for us. So if you've never repented of your sins, turned away from the fact that you were born autonomous and rejecting Him, and turned towards living with Jesus as your King and, and really trusted and believed in His finished work on the cross, then you have an opportunity even now today in your heart to deny yourself and declare Jesus as King. To ask Him by His grace to save you, to turn you away from your sins, and to help you follow Him and live for Him. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if you right here, right now today, would simply just confess that you are a sinner in need of God's grace, and that you believe in His finished work on the cross was purchased for you, then today you can know that you belong to the Savior. And you could join with us in singing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. If you don't know him personally, then and you have questions, or maybe you just want to walk that through with somebody. Pastor Justin will be down front, some of our deacons as well. We'd love to walk through that. I'll be at the back of our sanctuary. I'd love to talk with you about Jesus today. I'll stay as long as we need to stay. But church family, as we've seen from the application of this service, we're called to suffer. And many of us have suffered much with physical turmoil and difficulty, but specifically we're called to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
which means when someone treats us with evil, we do not revile evil, for, or we do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. We instead imitate the sufferings of our Savior and we trust that God will justify us. And he already has. <laughs> so here's the thing, is that is increasingly difficult in this day and age where the culture perpetuates picking a side and treating everybody else as your enemy. But not in here, church family. That's why it starts in here. And so particularly if you're here and you have returned evil for evil with someone here, maybe you feel like you've been treated unjustly or unfairly or you have animosity against your brother and sister, then take this opportunity to make that right now. To go to them, to seek them, to encourage them. We are the family of God. And we display Christ's love by loving those who hate us. And so it starts in here, but then it bleeds out to the world. And here's why you need to get it right here, okay? It's because if we're going to do this in this particular culture, we need each other. We, we need each other as a comfort and reminder of the grace of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you are experiencing suffering in this culture, in this world, for the sake of Christ, you need to bear that burden with your brother and sister. You need to seek them as a source and a gift of God's comfort that He's given to you so that Christ would be honored. You'd be united together by faith. I'm sure we could go through testimony after testimony for people in here who have suffered for the name of Jesus and, and brothers and sisters coming alongside them and joining them in that fight and loving them through it has meant more than anything. So if you're here this morning, and that's you, you're, you're enduring suffering, then, then be encouraged. You are not alone. But we're called to this life. So we ask for God's help to help us trust Him in a way that Jesus did. I'm so thankful I get to be your pastor. It's been a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. I pray that God will certainly work mightily, as I know He's faithful to do through His Word. And we'll start next week in our Advent series in Isaiah, because it's about to begin to look a lot like Christmas in here, isn't it, Miss Joyce? Uh, so we praise God for each and every one of you.